analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Beautiful day here in Kamloops. Blue skies, sunshine. Uh, not terribly warm, though. Uh, we got an exciting show ahead of us. We'll talk youth homelessness uh, with Interior Community Services. We'll also talk all things North Shore with Jeremy Heighton, the Executive Director of the NSBIA. And vaccines, measles, and schools. We'll have Kathleen Carpuck and his chair of Kamloops School District 73. All that ahead. But first, our weekly civic update. Uh, good morning to Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian, who joins me in studio. How are you? I'm great. Good to be here. Uh, nice pink shirt you got there. Well, thank you very much. You know, and anti-bullying and harassment awareness is big with the city of Kamloops as it should be with the entire city. So. Yeah. What, uh, what are you guys doing from a city perspective today? Well, uh, yesterday, council and the senior administration were all dressed in pink, and today all of our staff will be. And uh, we have corporate policies that uh, deal with, uh, you know, the way people uh, should expect to be treated in the workplace, uh, both internally and externally. So it's important to us, and it's part of our human resources initiative. Perfect. Uh, from pink to green, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but uh, there was some hope that there'd be a revenue sharing formula for cannabis taxation in last week's budget. There was not. Uh, my understanding from Arjun Singh is there's some kind of a new timeline. In essence, uh, it looks like they want to get an idea of what the revenue is before they split it up. But you guys have incurred costs as a city to set this thing up. We've been on the leading edge. We've got 14 shops now that have been given a approval by council. Um, I guess the question to you is, with the cost we've already incurred, what's the time frame that you can carry those costs without a deal before you have to make a decision about passing it on to local taxpayers? Well, you know, that would probably be next year. I think that, uh, you know, the costs that we have are incremental within our uh, development, engineering, and sustainability division. So we've got staff focused on these files, and they're not doing other work. So, you know, as a result, uh, the bills keep mounting, and uh, the revenue is a big goose egg at this point. I too spoke with, uh, you know, President Arjun Singh uh, this week about it and expressed my uh, concern that this seems to be taking an awful long time to resolve. Uh, but there's other issues within this uh, whole retail operation, and that is the supply side. And uh, right now, while we have approved 15 stores in Kamloops, uh, we've only got one open. And uh, even that store is having difficulty meeting demand. So, you know, I think think that they have some other things to look at in the supply chain and uh, you know I, I'm hoping that after they get that organized that they'll address the issue even notionally about splitting up the 75% that they got from the feds. What do you think about uh, a city like Kamloops which is again I mentioned on the forefront of the marijuana thing um, when it comes to revenue sharing with a city let's say like Abbotsford which is kind of a similar size-ish um, but has chosen not to have marijuana stores. When it comes to revenue sharing, should should the same amount of revenue flow to an Abbotsford as does a Kamloops, even though they're on different ends of the spectrum and actually tabling legal marijuana stores? Yeah, you know, that's kind of the gas tax argument all over again. You know, yeah. it's not how much gas is used by your community. It's how much gas is used by the province and you get a per capita share. Uh, you know, Richmond's done that. Uh, so has Abbotsford. Uh, but uh, really, people from Abbotsford and from Richmond are going to be 
accessing cannabis at other locations. That's yeah. the reality. They're getting it now. They're not going to stop. So, uh, you know, whether those councils decide to uh, get involved in the in the uh, operation of, of retail sales or not is their, their business. But we do have built into our system some revenue that comes from our business licensing. Uh, and those, as we talked about some months ago, are higher than other businesses. So there is some return on investment from, from those business licenses. But quite frankly, uh, you know, the UBCM does this negotiation on behalf of local governments across British Columbia, and I'm uh, just urging them to get on with it and urging the government to come to the table. Yeah. Uh, on the on the cannabis front, yesterday in council, you guys said yes to one, no to another. On the no side, uh, they wanted a variance, as I understand it. They were 94 metres away from another legal cannabis store. Is that just going to be a hard no? These are the rules. This is where they are. And anything outside of that is just that's that's not going to fly here. Yeah, the sentiment I heard around the council table yesterday was that 100 meters is it. So if you're, uh, you know, going to be uh, within 100 meters, you're not likely to have a very easy ride. Uh, remembering that when this was first brought to council, it was intended to be 150 meters, and yeah. council at that time reduced it to 100. So I think uh, that's really where they're prepared to go. And and uh, it's it's this argument about clustering uh, versus spreading that uh, kind of retail opportunity across. Across the city, would you reassess that 100 meters at any point, or that just is what it is right now? It is what it is right now. But I think the entire retail cannabis landscape will be reassessed once once we've had a, a year or two under our belt. You know, right now I think we're probably a little over uh, served in terms of the number of stores. But those uh, entrepreneurs are likely waiting for the legalization of uh, edible marijuana, and they will be able to sustain their businesses through the sales of creams and sobs and brownies and the <laughs> likes of that. So, you know, that's coming this year and, and to the end of this year. So, you know, I think uh, after that gets approved, there'll be some sort of stabilization within that the marketplace. You seem pretty familiar with uh, with the items in the edibles. Yeah, scene, just, uh, just what I've read. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask you about this because uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but the city has seen a series of uh, rather high-profile criminal incidents. We had the shootings, we had that all-day drama which resulted in, in a kidnapping. Thankfully, they uh, RCMP did their job and, and, and managed to get that thing without any harm being done to anybody. Um, these are concerning things. They're, whether by circumstance or coincidence or whatever, they're clustered closer together. A lot of people in the city are talking about this. Do you, do you have concerns about the crime out there? Is this an unfortunate series of events as far as timing? Does, does something need to be done? Are you concerned? Your perspective? Well, of course I'm concerned. I mean, uh, if you if you think back uh, in late uh 2017, we had a, a spate of gun violence that really was unheard of in Kamloops. And now, fast forward to 2019, and in, in the first quarter here, we've had a spate of homicides that's really unprecedented within Kamloops. And so uh, these are concerning uh, incidents, and we have uh, every available resource at the RCM Police Detachment that we have locally, and we have brought in uh, the uh, uniformed anti-drug uh, units that are available to us as the city. So uh, they are working around the clock to uh, ensure that we can get a handle on this. But right now, it's very unstable within this sector. And uh, that is the risk that's out there. And the reason I ask is because um, 
I spent a number of years covering gang stuff in Surrey, and I watched a community there struggle with a reputation around crime, with headlines virtually every day at some points, uh, and politicians who stood out and said, we need to do something, we need to take action, we need more police, and it just seemed to be a cyclical thing. And I just wonder if we'd be well served to somehow nip this in the bud, whatever is going on out there, to the best of our ability, before it spirals into that. Yeah, you know, there's a there's the real risk and then there's the perception of risk and the perception is often uh, driven by outrage and right now there's a lot of outrage in the community a lot of water cooler talk about what's going on and that's driving that that risk quotient here but uh, you know crime in Kamloops is actually on the downhill uh, and and we have been very successful with a lot of the uh, you know initiatives that we put in place through the RCM police but crimes of opportunity and in particular those crimes that are committed by people that are addicted to drugs are increasing and so we have to be vigilant as a community uh, just like they are in Surrey and just like they are in Williams Lake uh, that uh, you know we are conscious about locking our homes locking our cars getting valuables out of uh, sight that kind of thing and maybe in in a, a kinder and gentler time 25 years ago those were probably top of mind issues but they have to be now not only here in Kamloops but in all of of uh, southeast British Columbia. All right. Um, Mr. Mayor, we're out of time, but a uh, pleasure as always. Thanks so much, and we look forward to talking to you soon. I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back. I uh, will take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk youth homelessness. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone this morning by the Director of Youth and Clinical Services from Interior Community Services, Nicole Arnault. Tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing in town and, and uh, what, uh, what kind of work you guys are up to. So we have a long history in Kamloops of supporting vulnerable and at-risk youth who are struggling against um, significant addiction and mental health concerns and who are also often struggling against the issue of homelessness. Yeah, and that was, uh, there's a, we've now had two, but uh, we had the first ever youth homelessness count in the city, uh, and I think the findings really rattled people in the city. Um, how are we doing on that front? I mean, obviously, uh, that is still a problem out there. Uh, is there headway being made? Is it still uh, a, an issue that, that needs some serious attention? Well, give me an idea of the state of affairs currently. Sure. So it is an issue that uh, requires significant attention. Uh, we actually participated in a point-in-time count, uh, which was done federally across Canada, uh, in March of 2018, and our numbers looked a little bit different. Now, a point-in-time count is done over a 24-hour time period, and the findings of our point-in-time count here in Kamloops are similar to other sized cities such as Kelowna, Nanaimo, etc. And so the scope of the problem in that point-in-time count is looking to be 8 to 10 youth homeless. Wow. Um, how do we deal with that? How, how, do we, how do we reach a solution where we get to a point in time count where you don't find any? What needs to be done? Well, I think that a lot of our services um, here in Kamloops are just tremendous, particularly looking at uh, a lot of the work that our colleagues at Ask Wellness and Canadian Mental Health and the Phoenix Centre are doing 
to strengthen our addiction and mental health services would be a wonderful first step. And I assume that that is more or less on the province as opposed to the city, correct? It is on the province, but I think that the city can certainly uh, lend its support and has lent its support to really strengthening those services and providing some rapid access to uh, treatment options for youth. Give me an idea of what the need is to get the kids off the street. Is it a matter of getting uh, youth-specific shelters? Is it a matter of getting uh, certain services online? If there's services online, is it a matter of making them more robust? Is it a money matter? Do you just simply need more funding? I think that uh, it, it's all of the above. Currently, we operate a four-bed youth-specific shelter here in Kamloops. So we'll go up to the age of 18. Um, so that could certainly be strengthened to uh, increase the bed capacity would be a wonderful thing. And then looking at uh, some funding options to increase the, the staffing for some of our addiction and mental health services and to revamp um, our detox system to a youth detox system. How do you uh, how do you how do you build relationships with uh, with these youth that are out on the street or homeless? Obviously, um, not in you know far from perfect situations. Uh, I know in sort of dealing with regular homelessness, it's really important to build some bridges, build some relationships, develop some trust uh, in order to begin to you know open the door to services, etc. It, it I'm assuming it's more or less the same path for for youth. It absolutely is, and our teams uh, really practice a model of what we're calling assertive case management. So we really actively engage with youth. We find them where they're at, and we work tremendously hard, uh, oftentimes outside of regular business hours, to build that rapport and to continuously persist in building those relationships and bridges. From your perspective, um, what's the general reason that youth are on the street? Is it just a bad family situation? Uh, you mentioned mental health and addiction. I assume that that plays a role either, you know, as a causal factor or uh, later on. But uh, any idea sort of, you know, if there's a root problem we can attack, where is it? Well, I think that prevention is always the goal for uh, all of us as service providers, that the earlier that we can intervene with young people, and their families and provide them services to shore up those natural supports, the better off we are. Um, I don't know that there's one causal factor. I think there's a multitude of causal factors. Uh, but the one that we see at our sort of uh, point of entry for our youth is definitely looking at addiction, um, being significant and pervasive, particularly as we're living through an opioid crisis. Uh, and Consequently, there are some mental health concerns that come out of uh, that high level of usage. How do you deal with them on the addiction level? I know that uh, with the opioid crisis, there's some, you know, we've we've thrown a lot at the problem, a lot of money, a lot of different avenues of attack, and yet, you know, last year we saw another record number of deaths. Um, you know, how do you, from a sort of a youth lens, how do you deal with the addiction issue? How do we how do we find a solution there? Well, I think the solution is complex, and, and we sure did uh, we sure did lose some youth, and we lost some youth that were quite close to us. Um, so that's certainly on our mind. Um, and I think that some of the things that we've done as an agency is we've actually become a distributor of naloxone. So we both uh, teach and distribute harm reduction to our young people. And we also have been 
fairly uh, aggressive in, in getting them to treatment uh, across the province. One of the challenges is that residential treatment for youth, we only have 22 beds that are available for non-adjudicated youth in the province of BC. And access to get our kids there is uh, tremendously difficult to transport them to Surrey or Karameas, which are our closest access points. That just doesn't seem right to me. You know, why don't we have, is, is there not an opportunity to have local beds here? I mean, why, why don't we? That's, that's a darn good question. I mean, if you asked us for our wish list, we would tell you that we would like to see a youth detox here in Kamloops. And we would like to see some residential treatment beds here in Kamloops. What's the barrier to not having it? Why, why don't we have it? That's, that's a great question around the, the centralization of services, uh, which are, are centered primarily in the Lower Mainland. Wow, that just doesn't seem like an ideal situation. I mean, I, I'm aware that there needs to be more youth-specific beds, but it, I mean, to have to ship them out to a place like Karameas from Kamloops just it seems just, just nuts. It sure does, and, and again, our colleagues um, at the Phoenix Centre are working so very hard uh, to see this high volume of young people, but they really uh, could do some wondrous things if they were to be operating a residential treatment for our young ones. That's unbelievable. What an awful situation. Uh, Nicole, a final thought to you. I mean, there's, there's going to be people listening to the program um, who, who may be able to lend a hand or provide some assistance. I mean, if, if, for people out there, what, what can they do to help you guys out or uh, give you guys a lift or pr put some pressure on people to get something done? What, what, what can people do? Well, I think that folks can certainly um, certainly spend some time educating themselves about the complexities of, of these issues. And I think that Kamloops is wonderful in terms of loaning support, um, lobbying government to, to make the changes necessary to decentralize. Uh, some of our addiction services would be a, a wonderful first step. And of course, uh, sort of engaging in some critical analysis and dialogue around uh, the opioid crises and, and coming to a, a better understanding would be uh, some wonderful first steps. Man, oh man. Well, I, I really hope that uh, that uh, there's some momentum on there because it seems like there's some really common sense things we could do to help out uh, and and contribute a little bit to trying to solve this horrific problem. But uh, Nicole, thanks for taking some time this morning and shedding a little bit of light. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks so much, Shane. That was Nicole Arnault, who's the Director of Youth and Clinical Services with Interior Community Services, talking about youth homelessness in Kamloops and efforts uh, needed to reach those kids and some badly needed service upgrades. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll turn our attention to the North Shore as the Executive Director of the NSBIA joins us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local News Now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by the Executive Director of the North Shore Business Improvement Association, Jeremy Hyten. Jeremy, how are you, man? Uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> every, day is a, every day is an adventure. There was the polar vortex of doom. There was a slight F there. I was like, uh-oh. Oh, <laughs> the radio sensor in me clinched up there for a second. <laughs> 
All right, man. Um, you guys are doing your four-year yeah. renewal. Uh, yep. You and I would do it. Just had a nice long off-year mm-hmm. chat. But mm-hmm. give me an idea. It sounds like you are facing a funding challenge. What's going on over there? Well, I think what it is is when you look at the organization and, and nonprofits in general tend to run really lean, right, really tightly. So one of the challenges that we often have is we build programming in nonprofits on other funding sources. So, you know, summer employment programs or job creation programs or whatever. So what we saw last year is we saw that the summer employment program got cut 50% and the hours per week for employees got cut 25%. Mm. So you went from a 16 week, you know, 37 and a half hour week for your summer students, for example, down to an eight week, 30 hours a week program. And now you've got to deliver. So one of the things I've been talking about with a lot of members over the last you know yearish or so is what do we really want on the shore? We want a full time cap team. We need a little more capacity at the BIA because we're doing a lot of stuff. And yeah. frankly, it's only Patty and I, so it's like crazy days. Yeah, right? I can't believe there's just two. Of you. <laughs> That's madness. Some days I can't either. <laughs> um, but my point is, we need to be what I call operationally sustainable. Yeah. So if we want core programming like a cap team, if we want core programming delivered by us for community advocacy and events and all those things then we need to fund that as a business community so that it's there and it's predictable year over year. So what we're saying to our members, and again, we'll be posting a business plan on our website in the next probably four weeks or so, which actually lays out our next four years for the for the, for the the levy, because right. I really think we got to be very clear about what we're using it for. Yeah. Uh, what we think is if we go for our 71 cents per thousand assessed value, which is what we asked for in, seven, in, uh, in uh, 2015, yeah. um, because of the increase in land property values, it'll actually put us in a better financial position, but then we're going to ask for a 4% year-over-year increase. But at the end of that four years, we'll be at a budget level where we're now operationally sustainable. So what we will do in 2022, I guess it would be, we'll come back to members and say, this is the number we need to operate year over year. Yeah. So whether that's 59 cents or 43 cents, I don't care. It's, yeah. it's, we, we need the operation to, to work effectively. So we'll be laying all that out for our members. It's it, The, the um, renewal process is a default process. It's defined in the community charter. We have to go through it. And we're welcome to go through it because it gives us an opportunity to sure. reassess what we do and how yeah. we do it. Um, what I'm saying to our members is, if we want to do this and we want to do it right, and we are doing it right, I think, um, then it's time. It's time for us to step up to the plate and say, what do we want as a community and how do we make those things move forward? Yeah. And that ties into our now uh, ongoing community planning process, which we're launching tomorrow. What happens if members say, yeah, we're not sold? Well, we can go back We, we can go back and forth with members. We have some time for that. Yeah. So if members say, you know, the plan's not quite right, we have two options. We can either look at the, the rate we want to charge or we look at the programs we want to deliver. And so for the next four weeks, we're actually going out and doing member planning. So we've got four sessions is coming up uh, tomorrow night uh, at the Center for Seniors Information, the 13th at Chances, the yeah. 16th at uh, MacArthur Island in the second floor there, and the 21st is at First Memorial at the Corner Royal. And basically, we're going to gather all the information from our members there, and we're going to put that into the plan and say this is what we want to do. And so we think if the members drive that plan, then it makes sense to fund the plan. Sure. Right? It makes sense. Yeah. Um, the other piece about that, that that's really important is that process, that planning process, we will be using to drive information into the city in advance of the North Shore community 
uh, development plan rewrite that's supposed to happen later this summer. Yeah. Um, for two reasons. Number one is that we, as a business improvement association, want to be at the table. We want to be part of the engagement. But two, we think it's important that our community drives the development of our community. Not the city comes in and says, you know, from a planning point of view, here's some things we're thinking about. What do you think? We want to say, here as a community is what we think. As a city, how do you support us in developing that process? So it's, 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 it's almost sort of a reversal from what's been traditional. Mm. It's the it's the community driving the community rather than the city driving the community. Okay, so uh, yeah. there's obviously a list of priorities that you have on the North Shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I were having a really interesting discussion about bridges. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the Sing Street Bridge, or yep. the, the idea of one, tends to dominate the bridge conversation, but that's, interestingly enough, not where you think the priority should be. I don't think be. that's where yeah, it should so be. So where, where should it be? Well, I think there's... A, there's I want to just justify that the reason I don't think there should be a Sing Street Bridge specifically is if you look at that section of the river, it's the broadest section yeah. of the river in the city. Um, from an elevation point of view, getting up to the hairpin at Summit, which is where they're going to join it up, is, is engineering-wise, is like, can you imagine you going up, you know, 250, 300 meters high, plus you're spanning the broadness sure. of the river. I mean, yeah. the, the costs but, are astronomical. But we'd have an amazing bobsled run for the <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. I, I was thinking about this last night. <laughs> the wind actually blows in often from the west, so in the winter, it's a great sticking surface yeah. for all the snow and ice, right? So I'm like, you know, that doesn't work for me. So we've been talking with some folks, and one of the things we thought about was, what about Rayleigh? Yeah. You know, you have that access road into Rayleigh by the uh, by the gas station there. That road goes all the way down to the riverfront. So that so that the the civic authority already owns that piece of property. Yeah. So if you push that river acro- you push that bridge across the river into West Side there, um, what you're basically going to do is give Westsiders an extra out. And I know there's a lot of people who work at Tolco, for example. It's like a 20, 30, 40-minute yeah. drive to come around yeah. to Halston. Or if a so train's stuck on the tracks. Or, or yeah. whatever, right? So now it's a hop over into Rayleigh. It does a couple of things. Number one, it encourages better development from Rayleigh in and around that ball uh, far, what do they call it? Ball Ranch, yeah. the baseball ranch. Yeah. Uh, number two, it allows the core business area of Westside to develop more effectively because if you've got Rayleigh coming across, right, it, it, it connects those two pieces. Sure. Number three, it's, a, it's the narrower end of the river there, yeah. right? So it's and, it's and it's already kind of owned. So to us, it just makes a lot of sense. And then it also allows Westside, I think, to develop a little further up the valley because now we've got that extra output. Sure. And then you have something like West Victoria, which is coming up here in the next little while. If you had an accident on the hall, <laughs> as we saw when the Overlander Bridge was done, yeah. and you've got West Victoria down, where do you go? Yeah. Well, you don't. You sit in traffic for four, five, six hours. So so I think Rayleigh is a, is a really nice alternate. I think what also will happen is it'll connect the north end of the valley, so Barry and those guys closer into Calmus as well. Uh, speaking of infrastructure, West Victoria is uh, going to be a hell of a project. It is. And it that's going to really yeah. impact Overlander's mm-hmm. Bridge traffic. Um, considering that and the infrastructure you have sitting over in the North Shore mm-hmm. under your streets, mm-hmm. uh, concern there or no? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those kind of things where you look at the tronchial corridor basically from mm, about 13th all the way out to Aviation Way, which was just done last year. Uh, that that tronchial corridor, that infrastructure is really, really aging as well, and that's got to be done here fairly quickly. I think the city's got that in their capital plan. West Victoria is one of the older, to my understanding, older pieces of infrastructure in the city. And so the question is, do you wait for a cascade catastrophic failure, in which case, you know, it's minus 30 outside right. and you're digging holes and you're hoping to be rerouting your, your sewage while, you know, while things are spewing. Like, it, there's problems, <laughs> right? When, it, when you hit a failure point, there's, a, yeah. there's some big problems. And we've seen that already. We've seen that. So my thought process, uh, I think mirrors what the city's is, is that, you know what, let's dig deep. 
metaphorically speaking. <laughs> let's do it. Let's, let's do it, but let's do it intelligently so yeah. that we can control the impacts to it. What does it mean for, for Halston Bridge traffic, uh, or I mean, uh, Overlander Bridge traffic? It's going to be huge. I mean, yeah. it, it, don't, don't get me wrong. But what we also saw was when you handle it well, when you communicate in advance, when you help your communities to deal with traffic flow issues and other things and, and really get in front of it, um, some businesses really flourish because now there's no access route to downtown. So what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to stay in your own neighborhood. You're going to shop in your own neighborhood, right? Yeah. So for us, it's an opportunity for some of our newer residents or, you know, people who, who tend to shop in other areas to, to, to refocus on, on, on the shore. There's some great stuff coming on the shore. We want people to come and, and, and shop, right? So, yeah, it's going, to be an, it's going to be an impact. Yeah, it's going to be challenging, but I think it needs to be done, and that's the key. If it needs to be done, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it in a controlled manner. We're almost out of time. I do want to fire this question at you really quick because you're part of the business group that fired yep. the letter off to the attorney general mm -hmm. uh, looking to put some pressure on on this downtown BCLC headquarters yep. thing, which we know was um, sidelined, scrapped, mm -hmm. whatever metaphor mm -hmm. you want to use there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, any headway on as far as physically sitting down with Mr. Yes. Eby yet or no? Yeah, we're uh, working on a meeting for next Tuesday, the third Tuesday, Thursday, the thirteenth. Whatever yeah. the thirteenth, it's like it's so fluid right now. I don't even know. Open calendar. Uh, the thirteenth, yeah, uh, March thirteenth. No, I guess it's two weeks. March thirteenth, we are planning it's on a Wednesday. Wednesday, there you go. Sending a delegation to Vancouver, so some of the group will be able to attend in person, and the remainder of the group will be here either on tele or video conference. Yeah. Um, what we're after really is a better sense of what's going on. There's lots of rumors and conversations in the community, and basically, as a business community, we understand the thirty-four year relationship with BCLC. We uh, embrace it. It's a huge community partner. And we just want to go straight to the horse's mouth and say, what's going on? And how is it unfolding? And do we have commitments? And you know, what does it look like? Because as a business community, we represent 55,000 employees approximately. And we want to make sure that those employees get the benefit from BCLC being here. Okay. So in your mind, do you think that there is room to make the attorney general move? Like, do you think, do you see the ability to put pressure on to say, okay, you know, is there a possibility he says, all right, we'll, we'll reconsider, we'll reassess, or, or, or no? I think anytime you go into a conversation and you're open to the outcomes, anything can be achieved. What the big question for me will be is from looking at the budget and what was presented in the budget uh, yesterday. Yesterday? Well, yesterday. Um, Provincial budget last yeah, week. Yeah, or last week, or whenever it was. Yeah, I can't even remember. See, I don't even know anymore. It's like, it's so, it's all, I'm, I'm so focused on Jody Wilson, when, Rabel, when get, and yeah. Donald Trump, and oh my God. When we get, um, off, the, when we get off the air here, I'll, I'll familiarize you with the calendar option on your iPhone. <laughs> um, but when you look at, when you look at the numbers, is there, is there money in the budget? Maybe, maybe not. But what we're really after is that commitment of BCLC to keep the head office here, to retain, to remain a member of our community, and to figure out ways to ensure that that relationship continues in the future. All right. Uh, we'll uh, keep in touch on that because I'm really interested to see where that story goes. Jeremy, thanks, man. Appreciate it. My time pleasure. There we go. That's Jeremy Heighton. He's the executive director of the North Shore Business Improvement Association. Uh, we'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, vaccines, Kathleen Carpuck and School District 73. Local News Now. Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by the chair of the Kamloops Thompson School District, Kathleen Karpak. How are you? 
I'm great, thank you. And yourself? Good. Thanks for coming in. I'm blessed with like every, almost every uh, guest today was in studio. That almost never happens. Nice. <laughs> okay, um, this is so far not a problem here. Uh, as far as a measles outbreak that is currently occurring in the lower mainland and to some degree now in Alberta. But um, the province is moving to kind of tackle this anti-vaxxer sentiment, which is just dumb. Um, and so they're going to require mandatory vaccinations, apparently by the beginning of the school year. Uh, parents who do not uh, or will not vaccinate their kids then get kind of shuffled into this education program to inform them why vaccines work. It's crazy we have to do that, but it is what it is. From your perspective, from a school district perspective, how, how do you see this? I assume this is going to present some challenges as far as collecting information and stuff. How, how do you see this sort of rolling out? So the first thing is the government's not requiring max or not requiring vaccinations to be in school. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to be mandatory vaccinations to be in school. So that's the first thing I want to make sure that people know. What they're requiring is that you have to report your child's vaccination record. So, for instance, if we have a child that's immune compromised and can't have a vaccine, that child's not going to be barred from school. But we will have record that that child doesn't have their vaccines. So if we need to take precautions, we can. Um, so what it means is in September, uh, parents will be asked to present their child's vaccination record when they come to school. Is this information you currently don't know? Or do you know to some degree that we have a vulnerable child here or we have a child that the parents have chosen not to vaccinate? Is this currently an unknown or no? We don't have that information. That's not something okay. that we collect at this point. All right. Um, once you have the information, I assume, number one, it's probably good to know, because if we do have a measles outbreak, thank, hopefully we, we will not. But if we do, I assume it would be good to know, okay, we have X number of students that, that are of concern to some degree or another. But then the question is, what do you do about it? And I think that's where, okay, we have this decision, but then, because there's no, there's no legislative or there's no legal tool for you to say, okay, kids out of school. So, yeah. so what do you do? So we don't have the ability to say, okay, your child's not allowed to be in school because they you know, have um, no vaccinations or, or because they're sick. Um, what we currently do and what we'll continue to do is that if we are informed that a child has something like measles, we would send a notice out to all of the parents in the area that would be affected. And that's something that we currently do um, with head lice and other um, foot and mouth, that type of thing. Yeah. Because it's not just students in classes that could potentially be affected by this. It's family members as well. So even though we have um, or would have notice that a child may or may not be vaccinated, we would have no information about any other member of their family that might also possibly be vulnerable. So we would continue to send out a school-wide um, alert that uh, there was something happening in one of our schools. Should the school district play a role in actually ensuring kids are vaccinated? There's been some discussion at the political level of having mobile health clinics at schools or using the school system to try and improve vaccination rates. How do you feel about that? So schools are already a vaccination center because there are shots that kids do get through their school career. And that does happen. The uh, public health nurse comes out to the school. The parents sign the forms. The children get vaccinated at the school. And that's been something 
something that's been ongoing for several years. I don't know how the government's planning on uh, putting this into effect uh, in September, other than that we will be asked to collect immunization records. Okay, so there's some unanswered questions from your perspective between now and then. You need to sit down and get some information. Yeah, and I'm sure that that'll be forthcoming. Okay. Is the anti-vaxxer thing on, on the school district's radar, is, is that a concern? It's always a concern when we have a vulnerable population, and we do have kids that are in our schools that, um, for one reason or another, haven't been able to be vaccinated, yeah. either from because they're immune-suppressed, because they're undergoing some chemotherapy, or they simply, simply haven't been able to be vaccinated because of uh, allergies or something else like that. So we know there's vulnerable kids in our system. We also have vulnerable adults in our system, and so we don't want any of our staff to uh, have the negative repercussions of having a measles or mumps outbreak. So, All right. Um, we only got a few minutes left, and I, I cannot not ask you the question, because I know that you probably will give me the same answer you always do, but uh, we did speak to Rob Fleming, uh, who said that uh, we're very close on Valley View. Uh, looks like the, the final nails are being put in the business case, and then it obviously goes to a yes, no, maybe so decision. Um, anything new from your end? I understand you talked to the minister recently. I talked to the minister last Friday, and I just uh, made sure that he knew that uh, Valley View is still very important to us, and uh, he reassured me that we'll know pretty quick any what's happening. Okay. Any idea of a time frame? What's, what's pretty quick in I your mind? I don't have a time okay. frame, no. All right. Um, I did ask him also about, okay, if we deal with Valley View, and my sense from his language when he talked to me was we're going to do Valley View. He didn't sound like a guy who was going to say no to it. But uh, if we do Valley View, that, of course, is not a magic bullet for the situation you guys are facing. So I asked him flat out, what happens next? Do you, you know, are you, will he move on other capital districts? And his answer back was, well, then there will be a new number one priority and we begin to begin the process all over again. What would be the new number one priority, do you think? Our new number one would be Westmount. Yeah. because of the number of portables that we have there, the traffic congestion that we have there. Um, there's, it's probably our next pressing concern after Valley View. Okay. And then Pineview Valley would fall where? Pineview Valley would probably be our new number two. Okay. Interesting. But I, I assume from your end that, that yes on Valley View, hopefully, but you don't want to have a, a situation where it's now, okay, two years, three years before we make a decision on the next one. You're, you're hopeful. I assume that there'll be another capital project coming down the pipes, like timeline-wise, sooner than that, yeah? That would be what we would be pressing for, yes. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Kathleen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're keeping our fingers crossed on the capital side. That'll be big news once we get a decision on that. We're hoping that that'll happen sooner <laughs> than later, yes. All right. Uh, thank you uh, for coming in. Appreciate it. Uh, that's it for today's Woodford Show. Thanks to Kathleen and the rest of my guests. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.